All right, Nick. So we're done with our boards and uh, Kriogs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date on the most current OBGYN practices? Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice. And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, we know that you probably want to break after Creongs, but definitely something to, worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one year subscription to OBG First absolutely free. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Chiefs, find out how you can get OBG First absolutely free. And residents, get signed up for the core curriculum. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so today we're going to throw back to uh, some good old GYN, and we're going to talk about tubal ectopic pregnancies. So, uh, Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So we'll first review epidemiology, risk factors, and in a limited sense, the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy. We'll then talk about primarily with this episode, the medical therapy for ectopic pregnancy and the various regimens and risks associated with that. And then finally, we'll compare two potential surgical therapies for tubal ectopic pregnancy. Um, Faye, you know, we previously talked about the workup of early unlocated pregnancies and the actually the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy um, way back close to when we started this podcast um, yeah. with Dr. Aaron Cleary. Um, and then somehow we jumped over how to manage a you know, tubal ectopic pregnancy and went straight to C-section scar ectopic pregnancies. Right. Um, so I guess we kind of just jumped the gun there a little bit. Um, but I'm glad that we're coming back to this today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bulletin 191, for those of you out there looking for uh, something to read alongside this, is a great resource for all things ectopic pregnancy. So Faye, start us out with some background info. What are we kind of talking about or remind us a little bit about ectopics? Sure. So ectopic pregnancy represents about 2% of reported pregnancies, but it's likely an undercall because a lot of ectopic pregnancies actually aren't reported. And ruptured ectopics actually account for a significant cause of maternal morbidity and mortality. About 2.7% of maternal deaths in 2011 to 2013 were actually attributed to ruptured ectopics. Um, and most of all, the fallopian tube is the most common location for an ectopic pregnancy. About 90% of ectopics are going to be there. But we've talked about uh, before that these ectopic pregnancies really can be anywhere. They can be in places like the abdomen, which is quite rare, 1%, the cervix, 1%, the ovary, 1% to 3%, and a C-section scar, 1% to 3%. Um, this can also co-occur with an intrauterine pregnancy, and that's what we call a heterotopic pregnancy. And in natural conception, this is very, very rare. It's been quoted um, as low as 1 in 4,000 to 1 in 30,000 pregnancies to the point where, you know, really if we see a pregnancy in the uterus or we see a pregnancy in the fallopian tube, we sometimes don't even like, you know, acknowledge that there's another pregnancy in another location. But in IVF, this rate can be as high as 1 in 100. So certainly, you know, with our growing population of patients who become pregnant, it's something that we want to think about. 
So Nick, talk to us a little bit now about those risk factors. What puts you at risk for getting an ectopic? Sure. Well, you know, one of the challenges in talking about risk factors is that many patients don't have them. And actually, the bulletin notes that 50% of patients who have an ectopic pregnancy actually don't have any known risk factor for them. Um, but that doesn't stop us from trying to find things to help heighten our suspicion. Some risk factors that can be present include a history of prior ectopic pregnancy, just like anything else in obstetrics and gynecology, it seems like. Um, the recurrence risk after one ectopic pregnancy is about 10%, and after two prior ectopic pregnancies, the recurrence risk goes up to 25%. Prior fallopian tube surgery or damage to the fallopian tube is also a risk factor and kind of along the same lines, a history of PID or other ascending pelvic infections. Um, ART, so IVF, um, or other things associated with a need for assisted reproductive technology. So tubal infertility itself, um, patients who have multiple embryo transfer, um, infertility in general is actually associated with ectopics. Cigarette smoking is also associated, and advanced maternal age older than 35 is the last kind of minor association. One thing that I wanted to mention today, though, um, is sort of the pervasive rumor about contraception and ectopic pregnancy risk. Um, you know, you might have heard out there or thought that people with IUDs for contraception are at high risk of ectopic pregnancy, and that's not entirely true. Folks who are using IUDs are at lower risk overall of ectopic pregnancy because the IUD is effective at preventing pregnancy in the first place. Um, but amongst those who do get pregnant and have an IUD in place, potentially somewhere in the neighborhood of up to 53% of those can be ectopic. So again, IUD, very effective at preventing the pregnancy in the first place, so you're less likely to have an ectopic with one in place. But if you're not so lucky and do get pregnant with an IUD in place, your risk of having an ectopic is higher, if that makes sense. The other pervasive rumor is just that contraception in general might increase your risk of ectopic pregnancy, but contraceptive use, emergency contraceptive failure, previous pregnancy terminations or pregnancy losses, and cesarean delivery have not been associated with an increased risk of ectopic pregnancy. Um, so those are risk factors that are not risk factors. Let's kind of move beyond the risks, Faye, and talk briefly about diagnosis of ectopic. Yeah, sure. So we covered this pretty extensively in our episode with Dr. Cleary, um, where we reviewed, you know, pregnancy of unknown location workup, especially like when you see a patient in your emergency room or triage with bleeding and pain in early pregnancy. So we won't go into that pregnancy of unknown location pathway again, um, but we'll mostly focus on management with a few big points. Um, remember, trending beta HCG every 48 hours helps to determine if the pregnancy is normal or abnormal. So if a beta HCG is higher than the discriminatory zone and you don't see anything, that's a pretty good indicator of an abnormal pregnancy with 50 to 70% of those pregnancies being an ectopic. Transvaginal ultrasounds also help to assess the uterus and the adnexa, and this will allow you to identify any unusual masses um, that might be an ectopic pregnancy. Let's go ahead and start from the point of you following a patient with abnormally rising beta HCGs. So again, we know that our suspicion is pretty high for an abnormal um, intrauterine pregnancy versus an ectopic pregnancy. So, you know, the next question is what options are available to us? And the three things we consider are expectant management, going to uterine aspiration, or proceeding directly to some type of medical treatment. 
So let's start from the first thing, which is expectant management. You can continue to trend beta HCG in a stable patient, particularly in the case of a highly desired pregnancy, or if there's a very low beta HCG value to begin with, um, and potentially you just might need more time for that beta HCG to declare itself. These patients, though, should be strongly counseled about presenting for care should they experience things like significant bleeding, pain, or other symptoms that are worrisome for an ectopic pregnancy. So by expectant management, we don't mean sitting on these patients and not doing anything as they have, you know, days and days and days of abnormal beta-HCGs. The next possibility is uterine aspiration. So if we're reasonably certain the pregnancy is in some way abnormal, then a uterine aspiration can be done to determine if that pregnancy was in the uterus or not to begin with. So the aspirate can be sent to pathology or floated um, basically in your back room in your dirty utility room um, to quickly identify chorionic villi. If you find them, then you know that this was an abnormal intrauterine pregnancy. However, if the villi are not found, then HCG should be measured again in 12 to 24 hours after the aspiration. So if that HCG drops by at least 10 to 15%, then it was likely a successful aspiration of a failed IUP. Um, However, drops of 50% or greater are more indicative. Serial HCG should be followed to zero in these patients because if there's no pathology identified, you can't be 100% sure that this was an intrauterine pregnancy. And if the HCG is plateaued or rising, then that makes you concerned for an ectopic pregnancy and that patient is going to need additional treatment. So speaking of additional treatment or proceeding directly to additional treatment, Nick, what can we give these patients? So the practice bulletin mentions that there's some debate about whether uterine aspiration is necessary at all before treating an abnormal pregnancy um, with methotrexate, which we're going to get into methotrexate a lot more momentarily, talking about the standard treatment of a known ectopic. In this scenario where you're not certain but have this abnormally rising beta-HCG and you're reasonably certain of an abnormal pregnancy, on one hand, a uterine aspiration is going to confirm the diagnosis um, of an intrauterine versus an ectopic pregnancy um, and potentially helps the patient avoid exposure to methotrexate if it was just an abnormal IUP. On the other hand, though, having this procedure done is going to add at least an additional 12 to 24 hours of time and the potential for a tubal ectopic to rupture before giving that methotrexate treatment. There have been small studies done on this, and ACOG notes that the risk of rupture from these studies seems that it's overall pretty low, and presumptive treatment with methotrexate in these scenarios doesn't confer cost savings versus doing the aspiration. Um, However, they do reserve the choice for patients and their physicians um, to talk about presumptive treatment after discussion of these various risks and benefits. So again, three options with that sort of abnormal pregnancy expectant management, uterine aspiration to confirm intrauterine versus ectopic, or presumptive ectopic treatment with methotrexate. All right, Faye, so that brings us to methotrexate and talking about medical therapy for ectopics. Yeah, so let's start off by talking a little bit about what methotrexate is, right? So this is a folate antagonist um, that binds to the catalytic site of dihydrofolate reductase, and this inhibits the synthesis of nucleotides and amino acids, which 
then inhibits DNA synthesis, cell repair, and cell replication. So methotrexate is going to affect all rapidly proliferating cells because of this. And this will include things like your bone marrow, um, the mucosa that lines you know, the GI tract, cancers, and trophoblasts. And so this, it's helpful to keep in mind when you think about the side effects of methotrexate, right? Because it's going to affect all those things that divide quickly. So it can cause things like nausea and vomiting and stomatitis. It can cause abdominal pain. And very rarely, it's going to cause things like alopecia or pneumonitis. And there are no recommended alternatives to methotrexate for medical therapy of an ectopic pregnancy. It is also helpful here to talk about some of the contraindications to methotrexate, and this is going to help you figure out kind of what your workup is going to be before you actually give somebody methotrexate. So the absolute contraindications to methotrexate are, of course, an intrauterine pregnancy. If somebody has chronic liver or kidney disease, so you want to think about um, obtaining your LFTs and your creatinine before you give somebody methotrexate bone marrow dysfunction, so like anemia, blood dysgracious, thrombocytopenia, leukopenia. So that is going to prompt you to get a CBC. Other things like active GI disease or respiratory disease, if they're breastfeeding, if the patient is hemodynamically unstable with a ruptured ectopic, you clearly need to take that patient to the OR and not give them methotrexate. And um, the one thing that you know I sometimes forget is the inability to participate in follow-up because it's very, very important that these patients who receive methotrexate be able to follow up for more beta-HCG levels and potentially further treatment with methotrexate or even a surgery. The relative contraindications to methotrexate are things like a cardiac activity in the ectopic pregnancy, a higher HCG concentration, meaning more than 5,000 milli um, international units per milliliter, and reviews have demonstrated a failure rate of about 14.3% or higher at this concentration versus just 3.7% when um, the levels are less than 5,000. Other relative contraindications include an ectopic size that's greater than 4 centimeters on a transvaginal ultrasound and refusal to accept blood products. All right, Nick, so now that we've talked a little bit about what methotrexate is, as well as some of the contraindications, talk to me a little bit about some of the regimens that we can offer our patients. In the practice bulletin, ACOG mentions three primary regimens that have been studied, and they call them single-dose, two-dose, and fixed multi-dose regimens. Um, We'll post the table from the practice bulletin on our website instead of reading out exactly what you do with each because it's kind of boring to do that. But it's good to know from a CREOG perspective that the dose for single and two-dose regimens is 50 milligrams per meter squared of methotrexate. That meter squared is a body surface area calculation, so you need height and weight to be able to do that. Um, The single-dose regimen is the simplest, but can require an additional dose of methotrexate in up to 25% of patients that go down that route. And two-dose methotrexate treatment has a high success rate with a similar monitoring protocol to the single-dose regimen. There actually was a recent review article um, featured in the OBG project that suggested that the two-dose protocol was more successful while also exposing patients to only minimal transient side effects versus the single-dose, and it had higher success rates with higher HCG levels. Um, And so ultimately, they were advocating for broader uptake of that two-dose regimen. The least common one that I don't think I've really encountered in practice is this multi-dose fixed regimen. Um, And that requires up to eight days of treatment with alternating methotrexate and folinic acid um, for rescue and minimization of those methotrexate side effects. All right, so Faye 
alluded to it earlier, but before you administer methotrexate, you want to get some surveillance stuff done. Um, I think, Faye, you mentioned beta HCG, CBC, and then, you know, checking things like your LFTs and a creatinine may be easy to do with like a CMP or something like that. Tell me a little bit more about sort of your counseling of patients and what you tell them as they look towards resolution. Sure. So um, patients, first of all, should be counseled about the side effects of methotrexate, the things that we mentioned before, that they can expect to have some nausea or diarrhea or stomatitis, very rarely some hair loss. And they should also avoid things like medication, foods, and supplements that may worsen the efficacy of methotrexate. So for example, they really should stop taking their prenatal vitamins at the time so that the folate that they're taking doesn't counteract the methotrexate. Also, they should avoid things like folate-rich foods and NSAIDs, which may also decrease the efficacy of methotrexate. So sometimes, you know, in our triage, for example, we had a, a printout with like a list of foods to avoid. The other things to tell your patients to avoid are things like narcotics, alcohol, and gas-producing foods so as to not mask or be confused with the signs of a rupture. So, you know, patients produce, like coming in with horrible abdominal pain and it turns out they just had like a lot of beans or something the night before, right? Telling them to try and avoid that if possible. They should also try and avoid vigorous activity and sex until confirmation of resolution so as not to induce some type of ectopic rupture. So now that you've counseled your patients about, you know, things to avoid and stuff like that, Nick, what about follow-up? How do you counsel them? Yeah. So with single and two-dose protocols, um, you're going to evaluate beta-HCG again on days four and day seven, where day one was getting your labs and giving that first dose of methotrexate. Success in the single and two-dose protocols is defined as a 15% or more decline in the beta-HCG between the values on day four and day seven. If the decline is less than that, or the beta-HCG increases or plateaus, then you're going to give an additional dose of methotrexate on that day seven laboratory. With repeat doses of methotrexate, it's reasonable to consider those repeat surveillance labs, those CBC, CMP, to evaluate for any toxicity. Ultimately, the goal is to be following this beta-HCG all the way to zero, um, and you want to follow the patient once you get that first good 15% decline at least weekly. I typically would counsel patients that resolution can take up to two months. Um, it can take a long time for those betas to get all the way to zero. Um, but on average, with the two-dose protocol, studies have shown that it's about 25, 26 days for resolution to occur. And with the single-dose protocol, about 32 days for resolution to occur. Um, and then finally, in terms of talking to your patients about pregnancy after this, um, patients should consider avoiding pregnancy for at least three months after the last dose of methotrexate. Studies have found that methotrexate is potentially still detectable in cells all the way out to 116 days past exposure, um, but limited evidence suggests that anomalies in pregnancy loss are not necessarily elevated in those who become pregnant shortly after a methotrexate exposure. So giving that sort of three months or 90 days to get a, a decent washout of methotrexate is a reasonable, cautious way to approach that. And finally, methotrexate also doesn't have a measurable effect on fertility either. Um, and that's been supplemented with things like getting follicle counts or AMH levels, other stuff like that. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a difference with exposure to this single or two-dose methotrexate protocol. I think as an MFM now, you probably miss doing ectopic pregnancies in the middle of the night quite a bit. Um, and so I want you to 
think back to those times and talk about surgical therapy. All right, Nick. <laughs> I don't know if I actually miss doing these in the middle of the night, but um, for patients who either don't desire methotrexate or they're not candidates for methotrexate, then their other option is surgery. And uh, surgical therapy is, of course, needed for those patients who are hemodynamically unstable or they have signs or symptoms of rupture or intraperitoneal bleeding. And it can also be reasonably considered in a stable patient with an indication for another procedure, um, like someone who actually wants to get a salpingectomy for sterilization or hydrosalpinx removal. Surgeries that are available include things like a salpingectomy, which is a removal of the tube, and I feel like this is by far the most common way that we dealt with ectopic pregnancies when we were in residency. But the other option is actually doing a salpingostomy, or opening the tube. Um, and both of these are generally accomplished laparoscopically. Laparotomy is usually reserved for those really unstable patients or patients with like large bleeding and compromised laparoscopic visualization. Surgery can also be more effective than medical therapy and requires less follow-up, but it does expose the patient to, of course, those surgical risks. But for those patients who absolutely do not want to follow up, they kind of want like a one-and-done resolution type of thing, surgery may be the best choice for them. Remember that salpingectomy is technically easier to perform, and that's likely how most of us have trained. However, salpingostomy can also be considered in patients who desire fertility and have damage to the contralateral tube, or um, if they don't have a contralateral tube and would require ART for future pregnancy. To perform this, you typically make an incision along the long axis of the tube over the ectopic and resect the pregnancy tissue. And the problem here with salpingostomy is that I found that hemostasis is usually really tricky in these mm -hmm. cases. And trying to achieve hemostasis with like burning and the bovi and all of that stuff or your bipolar can actually lead to additional damage to the tube. And that's also because usually we don't close the tube. It's usually left to heal on its own um, because suturing the tube can the tube and actually cause further damage. Um, because you may not resect all the pregnancy tissue during a salpingostomy, you still need to monitor the beta HCG uh, to ensure complete resolution. Um, and you can also give methotrexate prophylactically if incomplete resection is considered. All right, Nick. So now that we've talked about medical and surgical therapy, is there a role for expectant management for ectopic pregnancies? I was surprised. Um opening this bulletin, preparing for my oral boards, um, and finding that, yes, there was a role for expectant management. Um, makes me too nervous. I know. It makes me really nervous, too. Um, but the kind of bottom line here is that it has to be a really well-selected candidate for this to make sense. So ACOG states that candidates for expectant management should be asymptomatic, should have some sort of objective evidence of spontaneous resolution, so for instance, like a plateaued or decreasing beta-HCG. And the patients need to be accepting of the potential serious risks, um, including tubal rupture, hemorrhage, or emergent surgery. Um, expectant management really should be abandoned if HCG doesn't decrease sufficiently or it begins to rise, or if there's any suspicion, of course, of tubal rupture. Um, I always remember one of our prior guests on the podcast and one of our mentors, Jay Huber, always talking to us about like, you know, the worst ectopic I ever seen had a beta of 40 or something like that. And just like, <laughs> again, it makes me really nervous to talk about this, but there actually is some data to guide this. 
If an initial HCG is under 200 milli international units per milliliter, 88% of patients actually have spontaneous resolution of their ectopics. And in a single small randomized trial of patients with HCGs under 2000, expectant management was not associated with lower treatment success than single dose methotrexate um, at a clip of 59% versus 76%. So a small trial overall. And kind of when you look at those numbers, it seems like that methotrexate methotrexate worked better in that patient population, but it wasn't statistically significant in the end. Either way, I think if you're going to have expectant management as part of your conversation with a patient, just be sure that they're well counseled and that you have good follow-up um, and emergency planning in place for them. All right, Faye, I think that does it on tubal ectopic pregnancy. Um, so why don't we try to summarize? Sure. So first of all, we talked a little bit about some background information. We know that ectopic pregnancies represent 2% of reported pregnancies and that fallopian tube ectopic pregnancies are the most common location for them, about 90%. Uh, we also know that ruptured ectopic pregnancies account for a significant cause of maternal morbidity and mortality. Risk factors for ectopic pregnancy um, include things like a prior ectopic, prior fallopian tube surgery damage, PID, ART, cigarette smoking, and AMA. However, 50% of those who actually have an ectopic pregnancy don't have any known risk factor. We talked in our prior episode with Dr. Cleary about the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy and the management of pregnancy of unknown location. We'll link to that on the website for a quick refresher. Once you have identified an abnormally rising beta-HCG, you have a couple of choices. You can expectantly manage the patient and continue to trend beta-HCG. This is acceptable in the hemodynamically stable patient without other risk factors, particularly if it's a highly desired pregnancy and the beta HCG is low, where it just may need more time to declare itself. Those patients should be strongly counseled, though, about the risks associated with ectopic pregnancy and when to seek care. Uterine aspiration is also a choice um, where by aspirating the contents of the uterus, you can make a determination by seeing if there's chorionic villi of whether the pregnancy was intrauterine or not. If villi are not found, definitely obtain a beta HCG 12 to 24 hours after the procedure. And if the beta hasn't dropped by at least 15%, um, you probably are looking at an ectopic pregnancy. Some authors advocate proceeding directly to treatment of an ectopic pregnancy without performing uterine aspiration. This doesn't necessarily result in any cost savings to the patient, um, but is a final option that is acceptable. Methotrexate is a folate antagonist and is going to affect all cells that require rapid turnover. And so that can help you think about the side effects of methotrexate, things like nausea, vomiting, stomatitis, abdominal pain, for example. Also, it's important to know those absolute contraindications to methotrexate, things like an intrauterine pregnancy, chronic liver or kidney disease, bone marrow dysfunction, active GI or respiratory disease, breastfeeding, hemodynamic instability, and inability to follow up. It's also important to know those relative contraindications as well. We also discussed some methotrexate regimens, including the single, two-dose, and fixed-dose regimens in uh, the ACOG practice bulletin. When you decide to treat the patient for methotrexate, when you decide to treat a patient with an ectopic with methotrexate, um, they need to have sufficient surveillance um, and counseling. You need to get a beta-HCG, a CBC, and a CMP to evaluate for any contraindications to methotrexate um, or the potential for toxicity later on. Patients should stop 
prenatal vitamins and folate-rich foods, and avoid things that may either mask ectopic rupture or be confused with ectopic rupture. With single and two-dose protocols, you're going to evaluate beta-HCG again on days four and day seven, um, and success in these protocols is noted as a 15% or more decline between those day four and day seven beta-HCG levels. If the decline is less than that, then you're going to need an additional dose of methotrexate, and you can consider additional labs. Counsel patients that this process can take all the way up to eight weeks to resolve, um, though most series show somewhere between 25 and 32 days as the average resolution time. Finally, patients should consider avoiding pregnancy for at least three months after the last dose of methotrexate. Surgery is the other option for these patients, and remember, patients who don't want methotrexate or are not good candidates for methotrexate or are hemodynamically unstable can get surgery. This usually comes in the form of a salpingectomy versus a salpingostomy. And finally, um, expectant management can be considered for the appropriate candidate. Specifically, these should be patients who are asymptomatic, have objective evidence of resolution, an overall low beta HCG, and if they are accepting of potential risks after counseling of expectant management. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of uh, this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to support the show, you can go on to www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee and give us a donation. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you have questions for us, suggestions for a show, or a correction for one of our previous episodes, go ahead and email us, CreogsOverCoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>